The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Or write to Dean Bible Ministries Incorporated. That's at address 5868 Westheimer. W-E-S-T-H-E-I-M-E-R, number 461, Houston, Texas, 77057. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study this evening, let's make sure we're in fellowship. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1.9 if necessary. Then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Sound, needs to, the volume needs to be adjusted in here while we're in silent prayer. That'll be a good test. Our Father, again, we thank you that your grace provides everything that we need, both in terms of our physical life as well as our spiritual life. We're indeed grateful for this uh, meeting place that you have provided for us, for all your logistical grace blessings, for all the ways that you supply every need in our life, and that you constantly teach us and test us to help us to learn that we can completely and totally rely upon you and upon your grace and upon all of your provisions. Now, Father, as we study your word today, we pray you'd continue to teach us through the Holy Spirit and that we would be responsive to his teaching in our own lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're continuing our study in Hebrews, and we're in Hebrews chapter 3, and we will touch on Hebrews chapter 3 just briefly in order to get our bearings this evening, make sure we know where it is that we're headed, where the writer of Hebrews was headed, and why he is saying what he is saying. Beginning in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7, the writer of Hebrews begins to... I think we need to crank it up just a little bit, Jack. He, the writer of Hebrews enters into his second major... Uh, exhortation and warning section. I've made the point several times as we have gone into our study here that the writer has a didactic section and that didactic section concludes with an exhortation and warning. Now in some of these, as we get a little further into the uh, epistle, the warning section is included, is not identical with the exhortation section. For example, in this section, the exhortation and warning are uh, the same. The, the entire section from 3.7 down through the end of chapter, chapter 4 is both an exhortation and a warning down to 4.13. So the emphasis is placed on this quotation that comes out of Psalm 95, Today, if you will hear his word. Now that's a direct quote from Psalm 95. Uh, uh, seven, And just as the writer of the psalm was challenging his readers and hearers in Psalm 95 to utilize the example 
of the rebellion of the Old Testament believers at Kadesh to be an example to them in their spiritual life in preparation for the coming of the Messiah. So the writer of Hebrews picks this up, and by using that same word today, he's modernizing the application, bringing it into, into his presence and saying, today you need to listen. And he's addressing his hearers in the first century, and in the same way, the, it makes the application more significant for us because the same principle uh, holds true that is contained within these verses. So he draws the exhortation, says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. And that's the major idea that hangs throughout this passage is that we are not to harden our hearts. Now, we have to come to an understanding of what that means to harden your heart. And that's part of why I'm going to go do some background study uh, this evening so that we can start to pick up a little more of an appreciation for just exactly what is meant by this and what's not meant by this. He says, Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, in the day of trial, in the wilderness. Where your fathers tested me, tried me, that's the Lord speaking, and saw my works forty years. Therefore I was angry with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my wrath, They shall not enter my rest. Beware, brethren, that there be in, in, in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Now, the quote from Psalm 95, 7 to 11 ends in verse 11. So he is drawing an application in verse 12. So if we follow his line of thinking, he draws a conclusion out of the didactic section. And he says, Therefore, understanding the significance of Christ's role as the one who sets the precedent for our spiritual life and the one who paid the penalty for our sins on the cross and then is elevated to the right hand of God the Father as our high priest, and he has suffered being tested. He's able to aid those who are being tempted back in 2.18. He's drawing all of that that he has taught related to the role of Christ in his present high priestly ministry at the right hand of the Father. And he says, therefore, in light of that, don't harden your hearts. And then there's the quote that refers to the example from the Old Testament. So he's going to make an application from the Exodus generation. And then he drives the point home in verse 12. Beware, brethren, lest there be in you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. And the word, therefore, departing is the word apostasy. Where we get our word apostasy in the Greek, apostasia. And so that brings a lot of question to a lot of folks' minds. There's about, there are basically three positions that are taken on these warning passages. And they are, position number one is that this is referring to the Old Testament generation as people who thought they were saved, but they really weren't. They thought they were saved, but they they fall into unbelief and apostasy, and so the, the, the fact that they don't enter into God's rest indicates they, they weren't ever saved. The second position that's taken is, called, is the Arminian position, 
And that is the position that they weren't ever saved to begin with, that the Exodus generation was not saved. And so that's why they don't enter the rest. And the apostasy here is considered to be the fact that they're just not saved. And then the third position is that they are saved, but they don't enter into the rewards and blessings that God had for them in time in the Old Testament. Of course, that's how we understand the passage in the context of Hebrews, is that this is a warning to genuine believers who are born again, who are redeemed, yet they fail to go forward in their spiritual life. They fail to take advantage of all the blessings and privileges that God has given us. And as a result of that, the Old Testament generation didn't enter into the land. The old generation didn't realize the blessings that God had promised them in terms of the entry into the land. And so the warning, the point of warning for us is that we are to pay attention to that and not fall into unbelief, not depart from an, a life of uh, walking by the Spirit and obedience to the Lord and application of doctrine, lest we jeopardize those blessings in time that God's already established for us or the blessings in the millennial kingdom. So that's the backdrop. The problem is for many of us, we get into conversations with folks and get into questions with people and they say, well, what do you do with this passage? Or they'll talk about especially Hebrews chapter 6 and we'll get there and they'll go to those passages and say, well, doesn't this mean you can lose your salvation? So we have to understand how to answer those questions. Remember, Peter says that we have to always be ready to give an answer for the hope or the confidence that is in us. That's for every believer, not just for pastors, not just for evangelists, but for every believer. We just can't say, well, it's in the Bible. We have to be able to give an answer. That means a defense, a logical rational defense based on the scripture for why we believe what we believe. And if somebody says, why do you believe that a person can't lose their salvation? I mean, what about uh, pe- people who claim to be murder, who claim to be believers or Christians and they're murderers or they commit this act or that act? Uh, how can you say that person's a, a Christian? So you go to passages like this to help uh, understand God's grace and that God's grace is dependent ever on what we do or how we act, or the sin in our life, because the sin is paid for completely by Christ on the cross. So in order to work our way through this passage, and also to provide background for the rest of chapter 3, and all of chapter 4, in fact, this is going to provide you with some Old Testament background for the next several chapters, I thought that it would be good to do sort of a review and overview of what happened to Israel at the time of the Exodus. So we're going to go through several points to just trace out what happened in the Old Testament. First of all, Israel was in slavery. After they came, uh, after Jacob and the boys moved from Jerusalem, I mean, moved from Judea in the land of Canaan down to Egypt at the time of the famine when Joseph was the vizier or the second in command in Egypt. They were uh, ensconced and protected in the land of Goshen. The Egyptians hated the Jews. They were, the Egyptians were some of the most arrogant, racially proud people in the ancient world. 
They didn't want to intermarry with anybody else. They couldn't stand to be around any other races. They thought they were just hardly a notch removed from deity. And so they really didn't want these Semites from up in the land of Canaan coming and living with them and eating in their restaurants or shopping in their stores or anything else. So they isolated them in the land of Goshen. And for some 300-plus years, they, the, the uh, 70 that came down into Egypt with uh, Jacob uh, are increased exponentially by the Lord in His grace. And within that period of time, and it has been demonstrated mathematically to be possible, the population of the Jews increased from about 70 to somewhere between 2 and 3 million. Now, you've got to grasp that number. That's, that's about the popul- about what's Houston now, or the Houston itself, not greater Houston. I think Houston's about 3.5 million. So that's just a little bit larger than the number of Jews that came out under the Exodus. That's a huge number of people. Moses really had his hands full. And you think about all the logistics of trying to move two and a half to three million people through the wilderness. Now, how do we come up with those numbers? We come up with those numbers because there is a census taken at the beginning of the book of Numbers that uh, enumerates all of the adult males over the age of 20 so they know how many are going to be in the, in the army, in the military, because they're getting ready to go into the land to conquer it. So there's a census taken at the beginning of Numbers, there's a census taken at the end of Numbers, and there's approximately 650,000 males from the age of 20 and over. So if there's 600,000, just for a round figure, there's 600,000 males, and there's one female for every male, that means now you've got 1.2 million. And if every couple has just one child, you're up to 1.8 million. So if every couple has uh, two children, then you're going to be up to two and a half million. So that seems like a fairly conservative estimate of the population of the Jews. Now, people question that because of the horrendous logistics, but remember, God was in the business of working miracles in the process of taking them through uh, the desert areas. And the Scriptures make it very clear that their shoes didn't wear out, their clothes didn't wear out, God provided food for them on a daily basis so Moses didn't have to figure out where the closest Safeway or HEB was so that he could figure out how to, how, to, how to provide food for all these people. God miraculously took care of them on a day-to-day basis. Now, when they came out of Egypt, they came out as a result of God's discipline on the Egyptians for the way they had treated Israel and the refusal to release them from slavery. And so the first point in terms of general structure of the events of this time is that there were ten plagues to deliver or redeem or to save. Those words are used in in various passages to deliver or redeem the Jews from slavery in Egypt. And each one of those plagues became increasingly more horrific for the Egyptians. The final plague, second point, the final plague was the angel of death. And God said that this would be the final plague. The angel of death would come and would pass over or would go through the land and the firstborn in every household would die. However, if someone were to take a lamb that was without spot or blemish 
and sacrificed the lamb and spread the blood on the doorpost of the house, then the angel of death would pass over that house. And that's the origin of the word Passover, as it goes back to that event where the angel of death passed over the house. And so the uh, households where there were believers who were trusting God to deliver and save them in that event would take a lamb that was without spot or blemish, they would sacrifice it and put the blood on the sides of the doorpost and then across the top. And if you were to play connect the dots, you would have a cross. So it is a type of the cross and it is a picture of how Jesus Christ would come as the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the of the world. And anybody who trusts in the Lamb at the Exodus event would not die, would not experience death in their household. In the same way anyone who trusts in Christ as Savior has eternal life and will not die. So the final plague, the angel of death would take the life of the firstborn. There was a for those who applied the blood of the Lamb, there was the Passover. And this is described in Exodus chapter 10 and Exodus chapter 11. Next, as a result of that and the loss of his firstborn, the Pharaoh releases the Jews from slavery. And he just about commands them to leave the land. And so they depart. But he has second thoughts and he starts to pursue them and they get their back up against the uh, Red Sea. In the Hebrew, it's actually the Reed Sea, so we don't know its exact location. It's not identical to what you see on the map when you see the Red Sea. It was called the Yam Suf in Hebrew, the Reed Sea. God led the people by way of the Reed Sea. When they had their back up against the, the water, no place to go, and then Pharaoh and all of his chariots have them trapped, and they're chasing them. The people panicked uh, and complained to God, and God delivered them. Throughout this time, God is, is guiding them with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Now, think if you're a Jew. I want you to put yourself in their position. What are you seeing empirically on almost a daily basis? You are seeing the miracles of God all through these uh, consecutive plagues, you're seeing God's judgment on the Jews because these plagues are not affecting, I mean God's judgment on the Egyptians because these plagues are not affecting the Jews in Goshen. It, it's selective, so their animals are protected, their, their flocks, their herds are protected, their sons are protected by the blood of the Lamb. So it's clear that God is protecting them and then once they're, they're released, and they're going through the wilderness, there's this miraculous supernatural guidance that's taking place. You can just stand there and see the cloud during the daytime and the fire at night. Well, point number five, the Pharaoh pursued them, and the people are complaining to Moses, why did you bring us out here to be destroyed by Pharaoh? He's going to wipe us out. We're all going to be killed now. And so it shows that despite the fact that they see these miraculous events on a day-to-day basis, as soon as adversity comes, they start complaining and groaning and griping to Moses and to God, and they just don't, don't they're, not just, they're not trusting him. But God rescues them anyway by parting the Red Sea, and so they escape through God's miraculous deliverance. Now, that must have been an awesome thing to see. The, the, the wind comes and just blows the water back, and instantly the ground is dry, and they cross over. And that must have taken some time to get uh, two and a half million, three million people across the, 
across the Red Sea and then to the other side and then the Pharaoh's army pursued them and the God re- stopped the wind and the waters came back into place wiped out Pharaoh's army tremendous thing to see yet are the, what's the people's response well they were trusting God at that point but we'll come back to that in a minute from the Red Sea they spent three days in the wilderness of Shur so they have to move through the wilderness for three days and then they arrive at a place called Mara, which is from the Hebrew word Mara, meaning bitterness. And there the waters are bitter, probably some sort of alkaloid substance that has made the water bitter. And what do the people do? They start groaning and complaining again. And they put the Lord to the test. And the Lord had Moses throw a tree into the water to make the water sweet. And so Moses takes his tree, throws it in the water, and all of a sudden it's drinkable. And there's a lot of water here. This isn't just some small well. This is a a huge watering hole where the water has turned uh, to alkaloid. Now, again, this is described as a test. God is testing them. So these are various adversities that the people are encountering along the way. And, of course, the purpose for a test is to reveal the doctrine that's in their soul or with them. It's the lack of doctrine that's in their soul, their failure to trust the Lord. Well, from there, point number seven in the review, they go from there to a place called Twelve Palms at Elim. And then they pass from there on to the wilderness of Sin. That's not sin that you think of in terms of disobedience to God. That's the short form for Sinai. It's the root word for Sinai. So there, this we would also we, modern times would probably call this the wilderness of Sinai down there in the Sinai Peninsula. And a third time they complain. They start griping and moaning about the food. God, there's not, there's not enough food here. And so God provides manna in Exodus chapter 16, um, verse 2 and following. Not only that, he also tells them that in the evening he, will bring qua- he, he would bring quail, and in the morning they would have manna. I like to think that manna would take, taste like a good hot Shipley donut. It was fresh every morning, and it was, it was good. Now, people who don't live in Houston have no idea what I'm talking about, but if you're a native Houstonian and you ever move away from here, you know what it's like to come back and have a fresh, hot Shipley donut. I used to just wake up some mornings when I was in Connecticut with my mouth watering. I can't wait to get back to Houston and have a Shipley donut. But it got kind of boring after a while because day in and day out they had the same thing for breakfast and so once again they, they complained. Well, as they continued on their journey towards Sinai, they came to the next place, point number eight. They came to a place called Rephidim. And now there's another test related to water. Notice how many of these tests just relate to logistical grace provision, just food and water and daily sustenance. And the people complained again, and now we read in the text, that they were testing the Lord. Exodus chapter 17, verse 3. And it's at this place that we have two names that crop up that are important for understanding the long-range history of Israel because they always go back to this event. And this place is called Massa and Meribah. Massa and Meribah. And Massa comes from the Hebrew word which means despair, and the Septuagint translates it with the Greek word perasmas. 
Perasmos is the word for testing or temptation. It's a place of testing where God is testing them with the fact that there's no water. And then the other word that's used to describe this place is Meribah. And Meribah means a place of strife or contention. And the Septuagint translated this with the Greek word loidoresis. Loidoresis, which means a place of reproach, abuse, or reviling. So the Massa indicates the fact that God is testing them, and Meribah reveals their response. They were complaining and griping, and they were contending uh, with God over the fact that, that uh, they didn't have any water. But God, at that point, directs Moses in Exodus 17.3 to strike the rock in order to get water. He's to strike the rock in order to get water. He's to take his staff and to hit the rock and to get water. And the text simply says that he did it. He took his staff and he, and he uh, struck the rock and out came water. Now, this must have been a pretty significant flow of water. You know, this isn't like going out in your backyard and turning on your garden hose. Turning on your garden hose isn't going to do just a whole lot for two and a half million people. This is a significant flow of water. There's a river coming out of this rock that is going to flow out into the desert and provide enough sustenance for all the people. I mean, this is a major miracle. Think about what the Jews have seen. Now, you're, you're one of these two and a half million. You're going through the desert, and you've already seen the, the ten plagues in Egypt. You, you've had your back up against the Red Sea, and you've seen God deliver you miraculously at the Red Sea. You've seen the daily provision of of manna every morning and the quails every night and and you've seen God provide uh, uh, the, the the turn the water uh, that was bitter into water that is now pure and now you come to Massa and Meribah and God is going to provide water out of a rock I mean day after day almost they are experiencing God's gracious provision in phenomenal ways and yet they continue uh, to complain well, after they leave Maribon, they're on their way to Sinai, they have a problem. They immediately run into one of the most hostile groups of people in the ancient world. I mean, this was a marauding band of, uh, I don't want to minimize the word terrorist, but this is a group, the size of the Amalekite hordes was quite large, several hundred thousand, and ancient records indicate that they migrated uh, across the uh, northern part of, uh, of what we call Saudi Arabia today, and they were moving in the direction of Egypt. Some people think that these are uh, a group that eventually, the Hyksos, that eventually after this battle move on into Egypt and just wipe out what's left of the, uh, of the uh, pharaoh's uh, army because it's already been decimated. In, the Egyptians were in a state of extreme weakness after losing uh, their cracked troops in the Red Sea, but uh, that's another story. The Amalekites are constantly a problem for Israel up until David finally defeats them. Saul almost wipes them out in 1 Samuel chapter 16, but he doesn't do a full job, and for that he's punished, and that's the episode, I just love it, where Samuel just lops Agag, the king's head off. I mean, the Bible is just so vivid. I just love these... these uh, uh, images. People today in political correctness just wouldn't put any of this fun stuff in the Bible. So God gives them this great victory, and this is the place where God tells Moses that as long as he raises his arms, 
that the Jews are going to have victory. But if he drops his arms, then they'll lose. So Aaron stands on one side, Hur stands on the other side, and they prop his arms up, finally, because he'd hold his arms up for a while and the Jews would win. It's almost like a football game. They're going this way, and then he gets tired and his arms drop, and then the Amalekites are winning, and then he picks them up, and then it goes the other way. And uh, Finally, they, they prop him up, and so the Jews have victory. But it's another picture of God's miraculous deliverance. Here is one of the worst most evil, most vicious, experienced military forces in the ancient world that comes across just a bunch of ex-slaves who can't fight their way out of a wet paper bag, no military training, very little organization, and yet they're defeated because of uh, the battle is the Lord's and the Lord gives them the victory. The picture I want you to see here is there's adversity after adversity after adversity after adversity and what's happening. God always provides the solution in the adversity. But what do they do every time they face the adversity? They just gripe and complain. I know that doesn't remind you of anybody you know. But every now and then it reminds me of a few people I know. Remember, it's just a test. It's only a test. Then, after defeating the Amalekites, they come to Sinai. And that's where they hear the voice of God delivering the law. I mean, if they had had one of those little Olympus digital voice recorders like I've got in my briefcase, they could have plugged that into their laptop and recorded the voice of God in MP3 and preserved it for posterity. This isn't something they're hearing in their heads. It's not some subjective experience that that in their morning devotions God spoke to them in their heart. That's not what's going on there. They hear the voice of God and it scares them to death. They're so fearful that they say, look, Moses, we can't handle this. You go up into the mountain and get the rest of the law because we just can't. uh, It just scares us to death to even hear the sound of God's voice. So there is, once again, empirical evidence of God's relationship with them. Well, while he's up on Sinai, they complain again, fall right back into carnality. Aren't they a lovely bunch? Not any different from the rest of us. And they rebel by having Aaron build the golden calf. This is the 11th point in the summary. They, they worship the golden calf, and then God comes down, and there's a, another uh, episode where God disciplines those who worship the golden calf, and that's Exodus 32, 1 to 35. And then they move out from Sinai, and they move towards Kadesh Barnea and the land that God is going to graciously give them because he promised it to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, their forefathers. But then we come to Numbers chapter 11. And as they're approaching the land, there's this episode outside the camp where the people start complaining again, and God punishes them with this series of what appears to be uh, grass fires and brush fires that surround the camp and seem to threaten them with destruction. So they they immediately... turn to Moses, cry out for deliverance, and Moses prays, and God stops the burning. And this place was called Taborah, Numbers 11, 1 through 3. Not much is said about that uh, particular instance, but it is another instance where they're complaining uh, about God's provision. Then God, then they start complaining about food again. These folks just complained about food every time they turned around. They just kept wanting to go back. to The, the Egyptians must have had tremendous cuisine at that time. 
because the Jews kept wanting to go back and have the tasty meats and the garlic and the leeks and all the seasoning and go back. And it's sort of like uh, when I was living in Connecticut, I always wanted Mexican food. You just couldn't get any good Mexican food up in New England. Imagine that. So I was always complaining about the fact that nobody could get any good Mexican food. And then I would think about this episode. So they complain about the food, and God graciously supplies food for them. And it's just an overabundance of, of, uh, of quail, and they all get sick. And in the process, Moses recognizes that there's a real administration problem here. And so God gives him authorization to establish a chain of command and to delegate responsibility to various leaders. But the people become ill because of their hunger lust. So that's an, the 13th point, and it's about the uh, eighth point or seventh point of, of complaining. Then we have the, as a 14th point, then just after that, Miriam and Aaron lead a little rebellion against Moses, and Miriam gets, God zaps her with leprosy, starts her, some sort of bacteria that starts eating her skin away, and she just becomes a lucky, a lovely sight almost instantly. I mean, you can just see it within a nanosecond. Aaron repents. He just confesses sin and gets right back with God before it hits him. And uh, God, once again, Moses intercedes and prays, and God says, well, I'll relent on Miriam, but she's got to be outside the camp for a week. But it's another instance of the people rebelling against God's provision of leadership. And then you come to the major failure, which is what we studied in the last lesson, which is what took place at Kadesh Barnea. They're on the southern border of the promised land. And this is it. This is the big event. And so God tells them to send in spies, one spy from each of the tribes, to go and recon the land, to uh, go on a long-range reconnaissance patrol, and find out what the lay of the land is, not to see if they can take it. As I pointed out last time, God said, I have given this land to you. But ten of them don't know how to exegete the Word of God, and they don't know how to interpret it literally. And so what they hear is God saying, go into the land to see if you can take it. And so they come back whining and complaining once again. We can't do it. There's giants in the land and there's too many people and there's their cities are all fortified and they don't realize as we learn later from from uh, from Rahab they don't realize that the inhabitants of the land know all about how God brought them out of Egypt they know all about the Red Sea they know all about everything that's been going on in the wilderness and the people in the land are scared to death that they're getting ready to get their get completely wiped out and destroyed by the God of the Jews. But the Jews don't have, have no trust in God, and they just wimp out. And so God finally swears at that point, as we saw last time, that this generation will not enter the land. Now, it's a cumulative effect. There's been disobedience and complaining and grumbling all the way along, but it's not over yet. There's two more failures that occur. There's the... Uh, rebellion led by Korah, Dathan, and Abiram in chapter, covered in chapter 16 through chapter uh, 22, which God has to, to uh, discipline greatly, and uh, several thousand are killed in that rebellion. And then the last rebellion is the sin of Moses and Aaron. And because Moses and Aaron disobey God in the same way that the rest of the nation has, 
God is going to punish them the same way. They're going to be prohibited from going into the land. In this particular incident, they're, they're, it's, again, they don't have water, and Moses goes to God, and God says, Speak to the rock. Well, instead of speaking to the rock, he comes back to the people, and he gets angry, and he speaks out of anger. Now, he didn't, that's not what happened back in Exodus. All Exodus said was God said, Strike the rock, and he struck the rock. Here he gets angry. He accuses the people, which is not what God told them to do. He speaks of himself and Aaron with the pronoun we. If we do this, and he implies that it might not happen by putting it in a subjunctive case, and which, which casts doubt as to the fact whether or not God will actually provide the solution. So he makes it look like it's up to him, Aaron and himself, rather than God. And then the way he structures his, his statement implies that it might not happen. And then he disobeys God, and instead of, of uh, speaking to the rock, he strikes the rock. And, but God, in his grace, still provides water. But there's consequences for his sin and failure, and they're prohibited from entering into the land. Now, that gives us sort of a framework for understanding the history of Israel in 35 minutes of their movement from the Exodus up to the uh, time of the beginning of the 40 years in the wilderness because that's roughly what happens there in those last two events. That's the beginning of those uh, actually 38 more years that they're going to spend uh, wandering in the wilderness before they're allowed to enter the land. Now, that's what provides the backdrop for understanding uh, the psalm that's quoted in Hebrews chapter 3. Psalm 95 says, Don't harden your hearts as in the rebellion. And I pointed out last time that the rebellion that is referred to here is that, that final act of disobedience and disbelief that takes place at Kadesh Barnea. Now the question is, in light of all of this failure, in light of years, the, all these years of grumbling and complaining, and every time they had an opportunity to trust God, it seems that they failed, were the Jews in the Exodus generation saved? Are these people saved and just not getting rewards, or are they unsaved? And that is the real issue that comes up. And, and it is a major issue in this whole debate between people who hold to free grace, which is our position, that uh, has become the accepted technical uh, theological terminology for what we believe, that salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. It's not uh, enhanced by good works at the beginning, and it's not necessarily demonstrated by good works on the backside. See, that's how lordship salvation uh, seduces people, is it says, well, if you're really saved, then you will produce works that are in keeping with your salvation. But all that does is introduce works into the back door. It's a back door works-oriented system. That it's not really faith alone. If it's real faith, you have to have works accompanying it on the backsides. Well, that's, that's not grace. That is a works-oriented salvation. So now we have to answer the question which I raised at the beginning. How do we know that the Exodus generation was a generation of mostly believers? How do we know that? I mean, they don't act like believers like most people do, and that's what you'll hear is people say, well, so-and-so. Do you hear what he did? How can he be a Christian? See, they, they may not have any 
theological training or understanding or ever heard anything, but what they've just articulated is the Lordship salvation position. How can that person be saved? Look at what they did. They lied. They had an affair. They, uh, they performed some criminal activity. Uh, they're homosexual. How can they be a believer? Very easily. They trust Christ as their Savior. Christ died for all those sins, just like he died for all your sins. And just that some people don't have overt sins that are socially unacceptable, so they uh, get away with their self-righteousness, but not before God. So how do we know that the Exodus generation was a generation of mostly believers? Well, first of all, let's understand what salvation was based on in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, salvation was based on faith alone in Christ alone, just as it's based on faith alone in Christ alone today. Today, though, we look back on a historically accomplished salvation which took place on the cross in approximately 33 A.D., Jesus Christ died on the cross. He paid the penalty as a substitute for our sins so that salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. But what about all those people who lived before Christ? Some people think that that they were saved by obeying the law, that that's why God gave the law. That's why they gave uh, the Ten Commandments. And I remember when I was just a young pastor and I was in my first church and I made the point that the Ten Commandments had nothing to do with today. I thought half the church was going to take me out and crucify me. I thought everybody understood that. And I didn't realize how poorly most Christians are taught in relationship to the Ten Commandments. Uh, if we just look at the whole events that have gone, on, gone over in, in Israel's history uh, from a, a perspective related to salvation, it was the Exodus event where they're delivered from slavery, and it's only after they're delivered from slavery that they're given the law. The deliverance from slavery, as we'll see in a minute, is a picture of redemption for the nation. They're only given the law and the Ten Commandments after they're, quote, saved as a nation. The Ten Commandments wasn't given to them to give them a way to be saved from slavery, but for their lifestyle after being delivered from slavery. So in the Old Testament, salvation was a matter of of faith alone in the future promise of a deliverer. Remember, we say faith alone in Christ alone. Christ is the anglicized form of the Greek word Christos, meaning the anointed one. Christos in the Greek is the translation of the Old Testament word Mashiach, which we anglicize as Messiah. So there... Salvation was based on the anticipation of deliverance through the Messiah. That God would provide a deliverer, a prophet like Moses, but greater than Moses. And it would be through that deliverer that they would be saved. So it was still faith alone in Christ alone. It's just that they're looking forward to salvation and we're looking backward to salvation. But the object of faith was still the same. And it's always the object of faith which has the power. It's not the faith itself that has power. It's the object of faith. It's the promise of God that you believe. It is the work of Christ that you believe. It is the object of faith that has the power. The Mosaic Law was never given to provide justification. Never. Justification is Paul's favorite word to describe salvation. It was never used that way. A couple of verses that you can latch on to 
to, to focus your thinking. Galatians 2.16 begins with, actually it's a, it's a causal adverbial participle. It should be translated, because we know that a man is not justified by the works of the law. A man could never be justified by the works of the law. It would be impossible, is what Paul is saying. A man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. It is the object of faith that it's important. It's what Christ did on the cross. He goes on to say, Even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ. That might be justified isn't expressing doubt on Paul's part. It is expressing the potential result of the faith that's mentioned in the previous clause. We have believed that we might be. There's a certainty there. The the believe is to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. Can he make it any more clear? I mean, three times in there he says the works of the law can't justify. No matter how good we are, no matter how obedient we are, it doesn't cut any ice with God because the issue is, do we possess the same righteousness that God possesses? And that means absolute perfection, not the tiniest flaw. This is clear in Philippians chapter 3, verse 8 and 9. Paul says, Yet indeed, I also count all things to be loss. That is, in, in the previous context, he's described all the things he achieved as a Pharisee. That he was born uh, uh, into uh, Judaism and, and the tribe of Benjamin. And he's, he's gone through the most excellent training of the Pharisees. He's a Pharisee, the Pharisees. And nobody had, an, had a reputation that surpassed Paul's. No one had a mind that was sharper than Paul's. No one understand the law uh, better than Paul. And he said, I count all of that, everything that I did on my own to be lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as scubala. Now, that's not rubbish. That's an awfully um, uh, anemic word in the English for what the Greek says. It's horse manure is a polite way to put it. He counts everything as dung that I may gain Christ. All those good works, all that morality, all that religious ritualism is nothing but dung compared to what Christ gives us. Philippians 3.9 That I may gain Christ and that I may be found in Him not having my own righteousness. It's not what we do. Not having my own righteousness but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. At the instant of salvation, God gives you Christ's righteousness. And that's why He justifies you. And it's justification by faith alone. Because you trust Christ, Christ then, uh, our God imputes to you the righteousness of Christ and declares you just because you possess the righteousness of Christ. Now, were these Old Testament believers coming out of, out of Egypt justified? Well, let's look at what the Old Testament says. When the people first heard, of, heard Aaron, they believed. You can tell I was typing this rapidly. When the people first heard Aaron, they believed and they bowed low and they worshipped. We see this in Exodus chapter 4. 
uh, verses 30 and 31. And that's really a summation at the end of the chapter. This is when Moses and Aaron first come to the people, and Aaron is Moses' mouthpiece. And Moses describes how God has called Moses to be their deliverer. And Aaron spoke, Exodus 4, verse 30, Aaron spoke all the words which the Lord had spoken to Moses. And then he did the signs in the sight of the people. So once again, there's empirical data supporting his position, his contention that Moses is going to be the deliverer. And how do the people respond? So the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the children of Israel and that he had looked on their affliction, then they bowed their heads and worshipped. Now, this is something really interesting. We just touched on this a little bit uh, Tuesday night when we saw the uh, faithful servant of Abraham go to go back to the homeland to find a bride for, uh, for Isaac. And every time God answered a prayer, he bowed his head and he worshipped. He prostrated himself, literally, but the word means to worship. And it's the idea of expressing gratitude to God for his provision. And that attitude where we express thanks to God when He provides for us and answers our prayers, worship. That's worship. We get such crazy ideas today that worship is singing a bunch of uh, songs that make you feel a certain way and emote a certain way, and that getting into that mindset is worship. But you don't find that in the Scriptures. It has to do with your orientation to God and His grace and humility and expressing gratitude for what God has provided for us. So the people here believe God. And the word that's translated believe is a word that's familiar to us. It's the Hebrew word aman. We relate it even in our language today as amen. And that's a word that has a cognate in almost every language in the world, by the way which I think is evidence that Hebrew was prob- or an early form of Hebrew was probably the original language spoken in the garden and through ancient history before the Tower of Babel. Uh, Amon, it's a hyphial imperfect, which means it's causative, and it means to trust, to believe, to rely upon something, and it's used throughout the Old Testament to express the condition for salvation. In fact, in Genesis 15:6. We're reminded that Abraham had already believed God and it was imputed to him as righteousness. And that's the Old Testament foundation for the doctrine of justification and is the same principle that we saw Paul describing in Galatians 2.16 and Philippians uh, 3, uh, 8 and 9. And that is that when we trust Christ, whether it was in anticipation in the Old Testament or looking back in the New Testament, when we trust Christ, God imputes or reckons to us His righteousness and declares us to be righteous. And so this is the same idea. And they believe Him. This is the same terminology that is used in Genesis 15:6. In fact, six times the word Amman occurs in Exodus chapter 4. At the beginning of the chapter, Moses doubts the people would believe him. But by the end of the chapter, they do believe it. They believe, and that is indicative of their salvation. Fourth line of evidence that the people were saved is their belief is followed by worship and obedience. This indicates that they are trusting the message of God. That's the foundation for salvation. You see this both in chapter 4, verse 13, which we just looked at, as well as in chapter 12, verse 27 of the book of Exodus. Again, 
they believe God and His salvation or deliverance at the Reed Sea. Another time this is talked about, and this time you, you have it connected with the word Yeshua, which is the Hebrew root word for the name Jesus. In fact, Jesus in Hebrew is Yeshua. Jesus Christ in Hebrew is Yeshua HaMashiach. So Yeshua, which is another form of the name Joshua, Joshua is really an anglicized form of Yeshua. Uh, this is only the second time you have this word Yeshua used in the Old Testament from the root Yasha, which means to be saved. It's the noun salvation. It's the, uh, as I pointed out, it's only the second time it's been used in the Old Testament, so the significance is emphasized here by its lack, lack of usage. And the conclusion in that event is that God saved Israel that day. So again, they believe God at the Red Sea, and He delivers them. He saves them. Verse 6, they believed in the Lord when they saw the deliverance. Uh, Exodus 14:31 says that thus Israel saw the great work which the Lord had done in Egypt, so the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and His servant Moses. Now what's interesting about this phrase is again you have that same word, Amon. But it is linked, it says they believe in the Lord, literally. The New King James just says they believe the Lord. But literally in the Hebrew, it says they believe, and then there's this little preposition, but. It's just the, the Hebrew preposition for in is just a single letter. Uh, we transliterate with the letter B. And it's to believe in the Lord. And if you take that and you put it into Greek, it's the phrase pistuo ace. Now, pistuo ace is the phrase that, that John uses over and over and over again in the Gospel of John to express the condition for salvation, to believe in Jesus, to believe in the name of Jesus. For as many as believe in Him have eternal life. So, the Old Testament terminology that's used in Exodus is the same as the terminology that's used in the New Testament, which indicates that the people believe in Yahweh. They are indeed saved. Furthermore, point seven, in the Song of Moses, we see that Moses connects this salvation, when he talks about it, he connects this salvation with the words for redemption and the words for being purchased. He connects these together in his song of praise given in Exodus chapter 15. So these three ideas of salvation, redemption, and being purchased are linked together. Exodus 15 verse 2, The Lord is my strength and song, and He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise Him. And Exodus 15:13, You in your mercy have led forth the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them in your strength to your holy habitation. And then in Exodus 15:16, the last phrase, till the people pass over whom you have purchased. And that's the Hebrew word kana, which means to buy, purchase, or acquire something. Incidentally, that's the root for the name of Cain back in Genesis chapter 3. Eve called her son Cain because she has acquired a man from the Lord. So, kana has that idea of purchase. It's a synonym for redemption and purchase. So once again, Moses is linking all this together. The people are redeemed. They're a generation of saved 
Jews. Now, the final comment, which locks all this together, comes out of the New Testament with the writer of Hebrews. And this is in Hebrews 11.29, by faith. You know, all the way through Hebrews 11, you're talking about believers. They, they, you have Adam, uh, you have Noah, you have Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Joseph. They're all believers. And then we get down to 11.29, and, and the writer of Hebrews says, by faith they, that is the Jews passed through the Red Sea as by dry land. He puts them in the company of a whole mass of believers down through the history of the Old Testament. So they're, they're understood by the writer of Hebrews to be a saved generation. They've passed through the Red Sea as by dry land. And so our conclusion is that the Exodus generation is a generation of saved people. They are believers, but they are a rebellious bunch of believers. They don't want to trust God on a day-to-day basis. And whenever adversity hits, they complain, they gripe, they do anything but trust God. And so the warning for us is not to be like the Exodus generation, but when we hit adversity in our life, we are to trust God, and He's going to provide the solution for us. He's always going to handle the adversity. And that's what provides the backdrop for understanding the principle in this chapter. Now, we're going to close in prayer. When I finish closing in prayer, if any of you need to just kind of slip out, uh, you can do so. But Moses Anwabiko is here. And uh, I would like for him to come up and give us just a brief report on uh, his ministry and what he's been up to. And I know that some of you have to go, so, so that's fine. That's acceptable. We'll treat you in grace, but uh, we'll have Moses come up. So let me close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to, to study your word this evening, to be challenged, to be encouraged by it, to be challenged to be obedient, not to harden our hearts as the Exodus generation did, but in the face of adversity to trust you that we may advance in spiritual maturity and glorify you and not jeopardize that which you have uh, provided for us in terms of future blessing. Uh, We pray this now in Christ's name. Amen.